Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. Now this is going to be part two of the Terror in California series on this podcast. If you have not listened to part one, I highly recommend listening to that. Before you listen to this, this episode is going to make a lot more sense if you listen to part one first. Now, if you haven't already done so, check out previous episodes of True Blue Crime on all podcast platforms. And if you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. And if you'd like to reach out to the host, reach or you can reach me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. And if you're able to do so, please support the show on Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it'll ensure I can keep making free episodes of this podcast and expand the podcast in the future. And any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. For no cost whatsoever, if you could please rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on, I'd greatly appreciate it as it does help more listeners find the podcast so that they can enjoy it as well. Now, without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. Before we get into the summary from part one, I would like to say that a few things here about this episode. First off, I had no idea how much data was going to be required to go through in order to put this episode together. And I'm hoping that I can land it around the hour mark, but I just don't know as initially I started covering all of the all of these cases and then in time I I just started to summarize the cases because there are just so so many cases that are going to be attributed to today's episode. Now, by that, and I'll put this disclaimer out there, by no means am I trying to downplay any one crime versus the other just because I summarize a rape that and don't go into the details of the case does not mean that I think it's any less than the other details. I just reached a point where I realized this would be a two to three hour long episode if I covered the details of every single one of these cases. So as we go, I'll cover the details so that you listeners will get an idea of what these cases entail, but eventually I'll just be providing dates and summaries of the cases to keep the episode moving along. So a brief summary of part one, we discussed the crimes of the Cordova cat burglar and the Visalia ransacker. So in the waning months of 1975, the suspect has already shot and killed one man and shot and wounded a police officer. And after the incident with the police officer, the suspect would cease almost all activity in the Visalia area, but a new terror was about to strike East Sacramento. So we are now moving on to the time period in which this killer is going to be called the East Area Rapist. The East Area Rapist is the name given to the suspect that was suspected of committing two murders and at least 46 rapes between June of 1976 and June of 1979. So we're talking two murders and 46 separate rapes between June of 1976 and 1979. Geographically, these crimes are committed in the areas of Rancho Cordova, 
and the cities that are now known as Carmichael and Citrus Heights. And then there's a handful of other cities and eventually we're gonna move around, more around the area of, Sa of Sacramento. Now, it's very difficult to establish all of the attacks that are associated with the East Area Rapist. There's several website out, websites out there that do an amazing job of putting together a timeline. And when I say that I had to summarize some of these cases, as you see as we go on, I'm focusing on solely the rapes, attempted rapes and murders. There's a list out there of crimes to include the prowlings, uh, ransackings, the, the terroristic phone calls, all that kind of stuff that it's well into the hundreds, uh, if not close to a thousand crimes related to the suspect during this time period. So while I did not want to venture down that road, I am going to do my best to cover the major crimes that are associated with him. And there is again, several websites that did a great job of breaking this down. I was also able to confirm now that the suspect was identified, uh, there, there is some verification that these crimes are related to the suspect. So I was able to find a website that did verify which crimes. And for the most part, these crimes are all gonna match up to verified crimes from the East Area Rapist. Because at the time, Again, you're talking about a lot of crimes over a lot of different cities with purposeful differences between the crimes. So not everything was recognized at the time as being the East Area Rapist, but we will find some common denominators of his crimes that led investigators to identify a vast majority of these cases as being his work back in the 1970s. So on June 18th of 1976, the East Area Rapist is going to strike for the first time. And this is going to be at 4 a.m. and a 22-year-old female is living with her father, but her father is away, so she's home alone. She wakes up to find a man in her bedroom doorway wearing a ski mask. He jumps onto the bed and puts a knife to the upper right side of her face. This actually accidentally cuts her near her eyebrow. He ties her up with cord that he brought along and supplemented that with a belt from, from her closet. He stuffs a white nylon slip into her mouth as a gag and he rapes her before rummaging through the house while she is still tied up. Eventually he's going to leave and she's able to pry a phone free from the wall and dial the operator. The police are gonna to respond to free her and she is the first recognized victim of the East Area Rapist. Then a month later on July 17th at 2 a.m., two teenage females aged 15 and 16 are home alone. Now, just like in the uh, Snelling homicide, from Visalia, the teenager is going to wake up to a man holding his hand over her mouth and nose. He threatens her with a knife, but she actually reacts so quickly that she's able to roll out from underneath him and take off sprinting out of the room. He catches up to her and hits her hard in the head a few times, and in the meantime, she's calling to her older sister for help. This is the 15-year-old, the 16-year-old's in another room. He tells her that her sister's already tied up, and then she fakes losing consciousness as the suspect ties her up and begins rummaging through the house. He comes back to the room 
ends up raping her and then demanding that she tell him where the money is. He ends up actually raping her a total of four times. And at some point he's asking her where the doctor kept his drugs. And then the victim's father was a doctor and she didn't respond. He ends up leaving approximately two and a half hours later. And when the girls hear this, they're able to free themselves. The 16-year-old victim was not raped, but she had been tied tightly and told that if she tried to escape, he would kill her sister. It would be determined the suspect watched the house for a good amount of time as he knew there were two girls living there and as he had brought enough rope to tie up both girls and likely knew the parents were out of town. So this is going to be a common denominator of all of his crimes is that it appears that he has done a lot of research into his victims. He'll often know quite a bit about their their other family members and how many people live in the house and sometimes the layout of the house he seems to be familiar with and this is believed to have been accomplished a number of different ways to include breaking into the homes when no one is around to plan out these rapes as well as later on he'll pose as a realtor and it's believed he was would often drive through these neighborhoods in different vehicles uh, looking for potential victims. Now the following month on August 29th and this is still 1976, a male tries breaking into a house occupied by a mother and her two daughters. The daughters are ages 12 and 15. The 12 year old actually woke up to see the man outside her window and ran out of her room to tell her mother. Her mother came to look just as the man returns to the window and he's standing outside the window and then it looked like he made the decision to run away. So when the 12 year old first sees him, he runs away, she runs and grabs mom, mom comes back and now he's at the window again so mom sees him because I'm sure the mom thought this 12 year old maybe had a bad dream or was seeing something outside her window or maybe she would watch the scary movie or something. So now the mother sees this, this man, has verified that there's a man outside the house and it looks like the man's running away. She runs to grab the phone to call the operator. Now this is, I guess, at least in this area is pre-911, so they've got to wait for an operator to pick up the line. And in the time that she gets to the phone and dials the operator, the man has now come through the window into the house and he's holding a gun in one hand and a club in the other. He demands she hangs up the phone, which she does, and she had not talked to the operator yet. He closes distance on her, and then the mother tries to grab the gun from the suspect, and a fight breaks out. He's clubbing her on the head with, with the club that he had in his one hand, and eventually she's going to make a break for the door. Now, during this whole altercation, the 15-year-old daughter is now going to wake up, sees her mother and her sister running out the door she joins them and the man is giving chase they're running and screaming to a neighbor's house and the man decides he's going to instead start walking down the street as if nothing happened however the neighbor notices the man is not wearing any pants so based on the timeline of this it appears he actually entered the house naked from the waist down so likely this mother with these two teenage girls knew what his objective was and just she did everything she could to make sure that her or her daughters are not going to become victims of, of this monster. So he, this is his uh, third attack and his first failure to complete his, his crime. So now it's only going to be a few days before he 
picks his next victim. This is September 4th. A single female, age 29, was doing laundry at her parents' house because her washing, washing machine and dryer was broken. Her parents were out of town, and she finishes her laundry, and she's walking out to her car around 11 p.m., as she's about to get in her car, a masked man grabbed her by the shoulder and without warning punched her in the face. This breaks her nose and knocks her unconscious. After she comes to, she's raped several times, and the man goes on to tell her that he just needs money to get to Bakersfield, that he was in the army, and then he steals her car but's recovered a few blocks away. So this is a good time to talk about what this suspect is going to do. There's It's covered in a lot of the different cases that he comes into these homes and when he has contact with a victim he's first going to order them into a point of submission so he's going to use the weapons to gain compliance out of the the victims and then he's going to start putting on these different acts he's going to act as if he's just there for money that he mentioned several times different victims that he just needs to get back to his camp down by the river and these are all determined to be red herrings and the the police see through them pretty quickly but he continues to do it through all of these cases he he uses different methods to try to throw off the police so that they can't really figure out who this guy is where he's coming from or what his motivations are and in this case it appeared like he was trying to act as if he was some guy that was down on his luck that just needed money in a car although it's clear that he didn't really take much from the home of value and even stealing the car he's going to park it a few blocks away and all just appears to be a ruse that he's he's using to throw off the police a month later on october 5th this is a 6 30 in the morning a woman's husband he was in the a captain in the army he leaves for work and as soon as the husband leaves for work she's faced with this man with a knife that comes into her home now she's got a three-year-old son and he's gonna tie up the son on the floor and then he's gonna rape uh, the woman several times in another in another room this one was one was one of the cases that kind of verified there's a good chance he was breaking into homes before because on September 20th so two to three weeks before this happened uh, she actually discovered a break in her home. She found a, a window ajar and then some muddy prints un, under a window and some items gone through. And, and the police just thought, based on the nature of the crime and the fact that it didn't match up to you know anybody getting attacked because nobody was home at the time, that they thought it was just some teenagers, so they just wrote up a report and were done with it. But when police looked back on this after the attack on this woman they realized this was likely some type of a fact-finding or information type break-in where the suspect was getting enough information to feel comfortable coming in to to rape this woman then just four days later october 9th a teenager victim's home alone suspect's going to enter in the night and for some reason and they still don't know to this day he tied all the door handles together with clothesline from the backyard so he had spent time in the backyard cutting down the clothesline wires and then he went into the home and before he woke this teenager up he tied the doors were opposite each other so he would tie the doors so and, and in a lot of cases this is where if a door swings inward to the room if both doors swing inward to the room you can't 
get out of that room because if you go to pull the door, it's anchored to the door across the way. But this was strange because he did all this work to do this, but there was nobody else in the house and the police were pretty sure he knew there wasn't anybody else in the house. So to this day, it's still a mystery why he tied these doors together. But he does take the victim out onto the porch where he repeatedly rapes her and then leaves the scene. Now on October 18th, a 10-year-old boy wakes up to his dog barking. He assumes the dog needs to pee, so he goes to let the dog out in the backyard. He flips on the light and is shocked to see a man standing outside the kitchen window. So I'm guessing this is some type of a... The, the kitchen window is right by the back door, so when he flips on the light for the back door, here's this guy standing you know, a few feet away at this kitchen window. Now, in this case, this was a small dog, but the dog goes after this, this guy. This guy starts running as the dog's chasing after him, and he gets to the fence, and it's set on the thing that he straddled the fence, and the dog is sitting there barking at him, and he quickly realized the dog wasn't really a threat based on his size. So... The boy said that the man then just started walking back through the yard towards the house. And the dog is actually nipping at his heels but doing no damage because of his size. And the boy smartly shuts the door and, lo and locks it and then runs to tell his mom. However, he didn't realize that the man had already gotten the kitchen window open. So by the time he gets to his mother's room, he wakes up his mother to tell her about the man and she tries to dial the operator, but there's no answer. It's later found out that he had cut the phone cords so that they could not dial uh, out, which is something they think he learned from the uh, case earlier in August where uh, the woman almost got through to an operator while he was there. So she can't get a hold of an operator, and the suspect's able to burst into the home ties up the boy, and then rapes the mother repeatedly before leaving. So that was at 2.30 in the morning on October 18th. Now at 11 p.m. that same day, a 19-year-old female is attacked as she's pulled into her driveway. The suspect held a knife to her throat and tied her up, but then left her there without committing a crime. And additional bindings were found in a neighbor's yard, but those neighbors were senior citizens, so not his victim type. And her father and brother had a routine that had them arriving soon after the attack. So he fled after tying her up, and they think he was he had picked the wrong home or was on one of those things where maybe the streets looked alike and he was on the wrong street and that this was not his intended victim because he had enough rope for multiple people but either got spooked by this girl and then at the last second decided he was going to make her a victim and then changed his mind, but most of the time he would know the routine of the other family members, and so he literally attacked her five, and left five to ten minutes before the brother and, and father got home, which was routine for them, so police were kind of baffled and thought this was just a mistake by the suspect. On November 10th at 7.30 p.m., a 16-year-old female is home alone watching TV. A man bursts in the room armed with a knife. He ordered her to turn around and tied her wrist with pre-cut black shoelaces. And this is this is going to be one of those things. I said there's there's a few things that are common denominators for this guy. And the one thing that police are going to find on almost every East Area Rapist case, if not all of them, is that every time he's going to show up with these pre-cut lengths of either shoelaces or some type of a cord, 
uh, to use for bindings. He's never relying on the home itself having something to use for bindings. He's always coming with these pre-cut uh, bindings. So between his method of operation and this item, he changes up other things. Sometimes he has a knife, sometimes he has a club, sometimes he has a gun, but ultimately there's some things that are all, almost always the same with these cases. So he's got these pre-cut black shoelaces. He takes her outside where there are more shoelaces hanging from a bicycle. So he's tied her wrist, so now he ties, ties her ankle and he orders it into a canal behind the house. He's tied and retied her binding a few times as if he's not really sure what he's gonna do and then he cuts off her jeans. Suddenly he tells her this isn't working and asked her if she was attending American River College. She told him no, that she was still in high school and he appeared to get frustrated and left her in the canal. Now, police would later find out that the house next door had a female who went to the college that the suspect asked about, and again, they think he got the wrong house, and he just couldn't handle the fact that this was not part of his plan. On December 18th at 6.15 p.m., a 15-year-old female is home alone. So the suspect enters the home armed with a knife, and he forces her into the backyard and ties up the victim. He ties her to a fence post, returned to the house, rummaging through it, and then he returned and brought her into the house where she was repeatedly raped. Suspect left, but police found a bloody bandage with type A blood, and the bandage not blonde to the victim. So this is where in part one I mentioned at some point, again, they don't have DNA, but if they can get a blood type of the suspect, they can at least exclude some suspects if they come across them. If they've got some guys known to be sex offenders or, or rapists and, and can't account for some of these times that these rapes are going on, if they check their blood type and find out they're O positive, there's no way that, that this guy can at least be the suspect in this case. So they do know that the suspect they're looking for is type A blood. This is a crime that is obviously going to be attributed to the East Area Rapist, so they're going to consider from here on out that the East Area Rapist has type A blood. On January 19th, we're now into 1977, a female is going to be home alone. The suspect stays in the house for four hours, raping the victim and rummaging through the home. Now, this is where I talked about, I'm just going to start to summarize some of these cases. A, the details of these cases are, are disturbing, and I'm going to try not to overwhelm any listeners having to to listen to the same crime again and again in, in, in vivid details. And secondly, we're just trying to move through this timeline and we've got three years of this to cover and he's hitting once, twice, three, sometimes four times a month. Then on January 24th, again, a female home alone, she's raped and then he drinks two beers and ate food while ransacking the home. So this is again gonna go back to the Cordova cat burglar where a lot of his cases, he was eating food and drinking beer that belonged to the victims. So even though he's unfortunately graduated, I don't like that term, but because it sounds more positive than it is, but at this point he's he's moved on to committing more heinous crimes than just the, the cat burglaries. But some of that stuff, that need to eat their food and drink their beer and that kind of stuff is is still a part of his criminal process. Now, on February 7th at 6.45 a.m., we have another case where a female's home alone. Her husband has just left for work. A man enters the kitchen with a gun and orders her to the bedroom. There he ties her up and rapes her. Eventually, her 7-year-old daughter wakes up and is standing in the bedroom doorway, which causes the attacker to pick up the child, throw her on the bed, and then thankfully he leaves. 
this is another situation where I can't tell if because he had switched back to a gun and eventually he is going to attack males and females together. I don't know if he, I had to assume he was watching the home and knew that the man was leaving, but he brought a gun, which he usually brings when he's wanting to control multiple people. However, he didn't seem ready for this seven-year-old girl to, to interrupt. So again, it was just one of those, it was outside of his plan for the event. And as a result, he panics and leaves. Then on February 16th, a young man named Rod Miller and his father hear something in the backyard. It's 10.30 at night, and the Rod was coming, I think, from the garage into the house, and he hears this sound. It was described as they thought something hit the barbecue grill in the backyard. So Rod turns the light on, and he sees this man lurking in the corner of the yard. Now, word has gotten out, and that's one thing we haven't talked about yet, is these are not... These, all these incidents are occurring in a very small area, and so not only is the media catching on, these neighborhoods are catching on, and there's, their word is spreading amongst these people of be on the lookout for these this guy. He's lurking in the shadows. He's out at night. He's preying on you know single females and women with children, so keep an eye out. So as soon as they see this guy, they realize this is probably this guy that everybody's talking about, so... Rod being brave and his father too jump out and start chasing after this guy because this guy starts as soon as the, the lights on and they see this guy this guy's bolting he's running from the backyard through the front yard Rod gives chase the suspect leaps over a fence and Rod follows while Rod clears the fence he hears a gun cock and then a loud bang so unfortunately as he it's basically once you've committed to going over a fence there's not a whole lot you can do and it was just at the point where Rod is going over the fence and has no way to defend himself, the suspect is waiting on the other side to fire this gun. Rod is hit in the stomach and falls to the ground. There was a second shot fired, but it didn't hit anyone. And Rod's father is able to kind of pull him to safety next to this neighbor's garage. And the suspect's going to run off into the night. There was quite a bit of police response to this, obviously, A, because it's a gunshot, and B, because L, the neighbors are calling. Everybody's on edge at this point. So as soon as two gunshots are heard and there's all the screaming and yelling, everybody's turned their lights on and coming out to look. But unfortunately, the suspect's able to slip away again. Now, this is one case that because the actual crime of the break and entering or the rape or, or, or whatever he had planned had not occurred at, at the time, they leaned heavily towards this being the East Area Rapist. But they didn't have that corresponding evidence to prove it. Now, later on, again, uh, the suspect is going to be found to have a connection. And this is going to be a confirmed case of the East Area Rapist. Then on March 8th at 3 a.m. And what I noticed, too, is a lot of the times when there's a close call with this suspect, there's going to be a break before he strikes again. So while he was striking... About every week prior to February 16th, he now has this three-week break until he tries again. So on March 8th at 3 a.m., he attacks a 37-year-old female who's home alone using a knife to her throat. He binds her, rapes her several times, ransacks the house while eating food, and then leaves. Again, brought his own bindings, ransacking the house, kind of all this, the, the normal MO. He's 
as he's going through, he's saying, where's the money? And, and, you know, I just need money for, to get back to my camp. Um, all that stuff is coming out just, just to try to throw the police off his trail. Um, then on March 18th at 10:45 PM, a 16 year old female comes home from her shift at Kentucky fried chicken. She had brought home or brought food home and with the plans of going to a friend's house to eat, uh, the Kentucky fried chicken, but, and her parents were out of town as she stopped home and she knew this was going to be the case. And she even recalled seeing that there was no porch light on, which she thought was weird because she thought she would know her parents would know she was going to be coming home late from her job. And they, they she was going to stop home before she went to her friend's house. So the light not being on was a little weird. She gets inside, puts the food down on the counter and suddenly she turns around and there's a man uh, with an ax. He threatens her with the axe, binds her up, and rapes her. Now, the phone keeps ringing, and he's getting frustrated. And eventually, uh, this friend that she was supposed to go over to their house gets concerned because she hasn't heard. You know, they've they've had these plans in place, and it's not like her friend not to sh- not to follow through with her plans. So eventually, she's going to show up. And because the friend shows up, starts ringing the doorbell, the suspect flees out the back of the home. Turned out the axe was out of the garage of the home. It belonged at the house, so he probably had other weapons on him, but this was a weapon of opportunity and one that's not traceable back to him. So it it also showed that he had spent some time in the home and the garage looking through stuff before she got home. Now, so that's March 18th. And this suspect's method of operation is going to change a little bit. Now, I, I recalled from one case, uh, one podcast I listened to about this case that it may have had something to do with the newspapers, the media printing articles about how this guy only attacks you know teenage girls or young mothers or mothers alone. And as if the suspect took this as a challenge of his masculinity or whether there wasn't anything to that, but that this guy just started to feel like it was too easy to control single females. He's going to move on to attacking couples. So the first time he does this is April 2nd at 2:30 AM. And this is going to be a adult female, her two children, her seven, eight and her boyfriend are all sleeping in the home. The female wakes up to a man with a flashlight and a gun pointed at her. He turns to, or he tells the female to wake up her boyfriend and tie him up with pre-length cuts of cord he's laid out on the end of the bed. He's going to make her tie this boyfriend down, stomach down on the bed. Uh, so it's kind of the, the classic hog-tied position where somebody's stomach is, is against the floor and then the hands are t- and feet are tied kind of up and behind the back. What? Once he's in this position and tied up, the suspect's actually going to put a like a plate and a saucer, like a teacup plate and saucer on the on the suspect's back and tell him not to move. And if he moves, he's going to kill the female. He takes the female into the living room and rapes her and he puts a cup on uh, a cup and saucer on her back and then starts rummaging through the house. He then comes back and rapes her. And this kind of goes on for Uh, an hour or so where 
he would rummage through the house, check on the boyfriend, make sure he hadn't moved. And the whole idea is if he's if either of them move, that cup and saucer is going to fall off and either break or make some type of a sound. And he's going to know that somebody's trying to escape or get out of their bindings or whatever it may be. So after he uh, rapes her, I believe it was four times, uh, he's going to leave. But thankfully, the kids who are in a different bedroom throughout this whole ordeal slept through all of it. On April 15th, he's going to repeat the attack he did on the 2nd. However, the difference this time is the boyfriend did move a few times. He was trying to get out of his bindings, and when he was trying to wiggle out of the bindings, there's two times that the plate and saucer fell. The suspect heard this and came in and was yelling at him not to, you know, not to move again, not to to do that or he'd shoot him. And the fact that it happened twice and that the suspect didn't shoot him, it definitely seemed like the suspect did not have at least at this point, a desire to actually kill someone, or at least kill someone that was in that type of vulnerable position. He did want to, did not want to be a cold-blooded murderer. The three people he'd shot at prior to this was Claude Snelling, who was coming after him while he had his do- while he, he had Claude's daughter, uh, the police officer that was trying to arrest him, and then uh, Rod Miller, who was you know chasing him down as well so when he perceives that somebody's a threat he has no hesitation to shoot at them or shoot them but it seems at this point that he's hesitant to actually follow through with his threats to kill people as he gave this guy multiple chances so he's going to complete another one of these couples attacks on may 3rd and then on May 5th, he's going to do the same thing. The only thing that was a little different about this one is this was not a boyfriend, girlfriend, or husband and wife. This, there's going to be two plutonic friends. The female came over to hang out with her guy friend, and they had some business um, dealings that they were going to do. She brings her two dogs over with her, and she would later say she felt kind of uneasy all through the night that when she let the dogs out into his yard, they would, wouldn't go very far and she just felt like somebody was watching her all night. Eventually, as she's going to leave for the night with her dogs, a man rushes up to them and forces them back inside the house, and then he completes the same couple's attack that he's done before. He always brings multiple sets of bindings, always has the female bind the male. Usually, in all these cases, he's armed with a gun because a gun is easier to control two people with, including you know adult male and adult female. Now, on May 14th, he's going to complete another couple's attack. Now, the only difference is this is going to be at a house where three months prior to... or The people that only lived there for three months, and the previous owner was actually questioned by police after this attack to see if they had received any weird phone calls or weird visits. And the previous owner actually said yes, that this 5'10 and stocky male had come to the house posing as a realtor but he was asking all types of questions about what her husband did for a job and how many people lived in the house and she just felt uneasy about it and she would even say that while he was dressed nicely when he walked away he got into this kind of old beat up car and realtors are known for having really nice vehicles so she just something didn't feel right with her so this was just further proof that he was employing multiple methods in order to gain information about these homes. 
Now, three nights later on May 17th, he's going to attack another couple. But at this point, he's going to start to play even more psychological games. He's going to speak in a forced stutter, acting as if he had a stutter, but they both believe that he didn't. And he's going to tell them that they should report to the media that he could have killed both of them, but he didn't. And if they didn't tell the media that, he would kill two people the following night. So this actually runs in the media, the story about how he's going to kill two people, which is going to send panic even higher now, uh, if it's not already at, at a fever pitch in this area. However, nothing's going to happen on the eve night of the May 18th, and it's not going to be until May 28th, when, May 28th when he strikes again. And again, he strikes another couple, uses his fake stutter, but this time he says if this shows up on the news at all, he's going to kill two people. And he made some claim about his, and this is his term, mommy doesn't like it when it's on the news. So again, it appears as if he's got all types of these personalities that he's bringing out on these different attacks. And again, I don't know if it's his attempt that if he does get caught, he could use an insanity plea. I don't know if he's, again, just still trying to throw off the police, although they're not buying it because he, while he's changing his voice and changing his the things that he's saying, he he's doing the same thing. He's coming in using the same gun, similar style bindings, the saucers on the back, all that stuff is always the same in these cases. The description is the same. Now, I should say, I haven't said all along, but he's always wearing a face mask and gloves. Now, it might be a different face mask, but he's always wearing a face mask and gloves. So police are not getting any better descriptions of this guy. It's, it's remaining the 5'10", uh, stocky, muscular build, strong. But they don't have a better face to work with, although they, the best face that they got was from the Rod Miller incident where he was shot. Eventually, when I saw the composite image of, in that case, I believe it's the one that was attributed to that case, it's a pretty good composite sketch and resembles quite a bit the suspect at that age. So they do have some idea what he looks like, but unfortunately this is the mid-1970s, and to be honest, the, the composite sketch probably looked like a lot of white guys in California in the 1970s. Now, there's going to be this break between May 28th and September 6th. And whenever there's a big break, it usually means that something has happened in this person's life that has changed their behavior pattern. Sometimes it's somebody going to jail. Sometimes it's somebody having a child and, and suddenly they don't have the ability to sneak out at night and, and commit these crimes if they're married because there's a potential that the child's going to wake up and the wife's going to wonder where their husband is. So I'm going to try to remember to come back and look at this break in 1970s, the summer of 1977 and see what was going on in the suspect's life at that time. That's actually what part four is going to be, is going to be we're going to identify how they found the suspect and then look at his life paralleled to these crimes and kind of find some of that find out where some of these breaks occurred, what he was doing at that time, and and ultimately, you know, his 
the disposition of this case. So hopefully I remember to do that in part four. Um, if I don't, please guys email me or remind me some way to, to go back to it at some point and, and have a discussion uh, on the matter. But he's going to, like I said, take that break from May 28th to September 6th. And on September 6th, he's going to strike again, and it's going to be his typical manner in which he attacks the couples that we've talked about. On October 1st, he's going to attack another couple. Now, this time, the boyfriend has a shotgun in the room, and, and in all the research that I did, I saw that this series of crimes is going to cause a massive spike in gun ownership in this area of California. Uh, talked about gun permits going way up and people buying guns. And so this is a case where there's a shotgun in the corner of the room. Now, I think I read later on that the male victim in this case was part of a Hispanic biker gang. So the shotgun may have not been for the East Area Rapist. It may have just been something he kept in the house or apartment all the time. But the East Area Rapist is actually going to give him a pause, I guess, almost kind of coaxing the victim to try to go for the shotgun. It was something along the lines of like this, the suspect just stared at him for like five seconds and kept staring at him and then staring at the shotgun. Again, trying to get the guy to, I guess, go for the shotgun or something like that. But the guy was realized there was no way he was going to get to the shotgun and get a shot off before he was likely shot and killed. So he complies, goes along with the attack and when the suspect leaves he's actually going to find out that the shotgun had been unloaded and the shotgun shells were under the bed and this was proof that the suspect had actually been in the home apparently this is a boyfriend girlfriend situation and they had gotten into a big argument and this was the boyfriend's apartment and he had gone over there to apologize or something uh, earlier in the evening and that's when they came back and then fell asleep, that's when the attack occurred. So the police believe the suspect entered the the place and unloaded the shotgun while this guy was away at his girlfriend's apartment. So ultimately the suspect knew the shotgun wasn't really a threat, but wanted the guy to go for it so that he would feel justified in shooting him, I guess is was the theory behind it. Then October 21st, another couple is going to be attacked uh, in this case, there's going to be a 13-year-old daughter in the home. And the suspect knew it, and I believe that he tied her up. But the suspect chose to rape the mother. And as terrible as this sounds, she's the one that said it. She just said that I'm grateful I was the one that was attacked and not my daughter. To have you have to have that thought in your brain is just it's tragic. So then only eight days later, October 29th, another couple's going to be attacked. And this is another case where the suspect had broken in earlier and removed bullets from a 38 caliber revolver in the nightstand. And again, he seemed to try to get the victim to go for the gun. I think he even told the victim, I know you have a gun in that nightstand. And he kind of gave the, the victim a chance to maybe go for it before by not giving him orders for a few seconds or something something along those lines in the reading is, is they made it sound as if he again wanted the victim to go for this gun to try to protect himself however the bullets for this gun are actually to be found in a neighbor's backyard so 
he's not even messing around pulling the bu- putting the bullets under the bed this time. He's removed these bullets from the gun and taken them completely out of the house. And on November 10th, a 56-year-old mother and her 13-year-old daughter are home alone. They're going to report the break-in from this guy, and they're going to report that the suspect tied him up and threatened him and used dishes to prevent them from moving. But both of them are going to deny being raped. Investigators had a really strong suspicion that the 13-year-old daughter was actually raped, but that her mother and her didn't want to admit it for whatever reason. So we've we've now entered 1978, and like I said, we're we're cruising along, but there's a lot of crimes to go through here. Uh, on January January 28th at 11:35 p.m., two teenage girls are home alone. Now remember, it's 11:35 p.m. While he's raping one girl, one sister, and then the other, he asks one of the girls when their parents are going to be coming home. They tell him midnight. And he ends up leaving, you know, a few minutes before midnight, and the parents are home, come home, it was something like 15 minutes after the suspect left. So this is another case where he probably would have stuck around for a lot longer, but he got spooked and, and took off. So a few days later on February 2nd, uh, this is going to be one of the bigger cases we talk about. Brian and Katie Majori, M-A-G-G-I-O-R-E, uh, they're a young married couple. They're 21 and 20. Brian's a sergeant at the nearby air base, Mather Air Base, that we talked about in, in uh, the Cordova, or in part one, the Cordova uh, Catburger case. He's a sergeant there, and they're out walking their dog. It's this little, like, toy poodle. And suddenly, this 10-year-old witness is going to see someone chasing Brian and Katie through his backyard and these shots are going to ring out. Brian's hit in the chest, and then the suspect runs up to Brian and shoots him again in the head and neck area, and then the suspect chases down Katie, and he shoots her in the back of the head, and then he flees. So this doesn't match the M.O. of the East Area Rapist, so people at the time didn't want to believe that this would be an East Area Rapist case, but what police are able to figure out later on i think they had kind of knew it that night but they didn't have evidence to point that way is that it's believed that brian and katie's dog got loose from the leash and discovered the east area rapist while he was either waiting to attack someone or scouting a house so i can picture him kind of in these bushes it's dark out and this dog you know alerts to this guy and starts barking yipping at him and so the guy picked up the dog and threw it in this pool and my guess is Brian came around the corner to figure out what his dog was barking at and put him back on the leash. And now, instead of just having to deal with this yippy dog, uh, the suspect now has witnesses to what he's doing. And again, this is well-known news at this point that if somebody's lurking in the shadows, they're dressed in dark clothing, whatever it may be, it's likely this East Area ra- Rapist. So... It's likely that Brian and Katie were just wrong place, wrong time, came across this guy while he's in the middle of either planning or starting to execute one of his crimes, and they became, you know, victims of of this. Basically, again, they posed a threat to him, not a physical threat, but a threat to contacting the police or catching him or something along, along those lines. 
So the interesting thing is this crime was, was kind of kept quiet in the news to prevent panic. And the police would claim at the time there's no evidence to suggest it was the East Area Rapist. And again, this is likely a ploy by the police because they're already dealing with massive panic amongst the community. And the last thing the community needs is two young people out walking their dog getting gunned down to add to that. Now, there is going to be another break now until March 18th. And again, this is a month and a half long break. And in most cases, that doesn't seem like very long at all. But the way that he was attacking women and couples... That's a pretty decent break, and that's likely because of all the heat that was brought upon by this this double homicide on February second. But on May eighteenth, he's or sorry, March eighteenth, he's back at it with his standard attack of a couple binding them up and then raping the woman. And then on April fourteenth, he attempts to rape a sixteen-year-old babysitter, but she keeps getting phone calls and. Not to bring light to a terrible situation, but I can just imagine all these movies from the 70s and 80s and even the early 90s of babysitters sitting at home getting you know phone calls from all their friends. I just wonder if that's something that was going on here where the phone just kept ringing uh, as people were trying to get a hold of this babysitter. And ultimately he gets so frustrated he can't follow through with the rape like he wants to. And it's taking him much longer than he anticipated and suddenly i believe it was the the parents of the child she was babysitting come home he sees the headlights coming in the driveway and he bolts out the back which again we've seen on a, a few cases here where he's fleeing these scenes just like in the Vesalia ransacker and the cordova cat burglar case he's setting up these scenes for a quick exit so that he's not going to get caught then on June 5th, he's going to attack another couple. Same on June 7th. This time, though, it's going to be a female alone. And then on both June 23rd and 24th, he's going to attack couples. On July 6th, he's going to attack a lone female. And for some reason, this attack didn't have a lot of information to it. On October 7th, he's going to use his standard couple uh, attack on a couple. But police are starting to realize he's moving further and further away from his original area. So originally he was just in that Rancho Cordova, the Carmichael and Citrus Heights area. It was a basically a neighborhood of the three cities together that he was targeting everybody in. He has to realize that the that police are just saturating that area with patrols and and he's worried about another stakeout incident like the Officer McGowan shooting. So he starts moving further and further away. So I believe some of these attacks are going to be in, in Modesto, California. So another decent-sized town, but outside of his normal area. He's going to attack again in October 13th. Another uh, attack out in that area. And then the same thing on October 28th. However, police are going to note that the suspect seems to be having more and more issues becoming aroused. And as... Disgusting as that is to, to mention or talk about, it definitely lends to the psychological aspect of these crimes. If you're looking at how he's ramping up over time, it's he started with cat burglaries where he wasn't necessarily trying to get seen or caught or whatever you want to say. Then he's going on to ransacking the homes and 
eventually to try to kit uh, and eventually pushing the boundaries with kidnapping and the homicide to now where he's almost exclusively going in these homes to commit rapes of either lone females or rapes where he controls the couple and rapes the female and it just seems like he just needs more and more control of situations in order to get aroused and not to make this sound terrible but these crimes have just gotten too easy for him on november 4th he's going to attack a female alone with a child in another room this is going to be his standard uh, attack on a female and not much is known about this case because now he's gone as far as san jose and san jose is well outside the area in which he was committing attacks so while they're for sure they're aware of the east area rapist i mean everybody in california and at this point it's kind of catching on across the nation knows all these attacks are going on and nobody's been caught yet san jose's not really at this time cooperating in terms of being part of the group of police departments that are sharing information and all that kind of stuff because they just they haven't experienced an east area rapist attack yet this is going to happen on november 4th he's gone as far as as san jose and he's going to continue to attack in this area kind of in December 2nd, he does a, his standard attack on a couple, and December 9th, he does a standard attack on a lone female. He's going to take another break here um, until March 20th. We're now into 1979. He commits a standard attack on a, a woman with kids, but he doesn't rape the victim, and the victim believes it's because she has this bad scar that runs down her back. So after he ties her up and cuts away her clothing he sees this big scar she says he stared at it for a few minutes and then just left the room and and left left the building on april 5th he's gonna attack a couple in this case though the the media or, or the reports i should say really highlighted the fact that the male victim in this april 5th attack was was very large and muscular to the point that he had brought his standard bindings, but he actually went around after the guy was initially tied up, went around the bedroom and found like some cords and belts or something like that. Some other bindings basically reinforcing his ties because he was worried that this guy was going to get out of his bindings. The guy did not, and he completed his crime as normal. Uh, June 2nd, he's going to complete an attack on a lone female. June 11th, an attack on a couple. And on July 5th, he's of 1979 he's going to attempt an attack on a couple now the male victim was 6'2 220 and it seemed like he refused to be intimidated by the suspect so as they wake up and see the suspect in the doorway he just start the the intended target the male starts just screaming at this guy to back off and the male and female victim in this case had actually talked about what is going to happen if if the east area rapist shows up in our bedroom so they had this plan in place that this guy was this intended male victim was just going to stand up to this guy and fight him if need be and it seems like he didn't need to fight him he just the, the suspect was just kind of taken aback and shocked that they weren't following his directions and that this guy was screaming at him so while he's kind of in this state of shock the female victim is able to escape by the guy and get out of the house at which point now the male victim he doesn't have to stick around and, and and actually engage with this guy so he's able to just kind of make his escape because he doesn't have to fear about you know leaving his girlfriend behind and 
So they both make it out of the house and run outside yelling for help. And the suspect, in the meantime, flees. So this is going to be the last recorded attack of the East Area Rapist in this area. And this likely, again, is because he's now reached a point in which people are standing up to him. And he risks either getting caught or injured or both. And so he's going to change things up again. And in the process, a few months are going to go by. And while people are still on the edge, kind of in this east area of Sacramento, down through San Jose, uh, where all these attacks have been occurring, it's actually now going to be Southern California that has to worry. So we're going to talk about how he changes gears and the fact that now rape isn't going to be enough for him and he's going to move on to murder. And so we're in the next episode, we're going to cover the time period of, of what has been deemed the original Night Stalker. So that's going to be it for part two. Um, and stay tuned for the next episode of Terror in California. And as always, thank you for listening. Uh, stay tuned to Facebook for more updates and support me on Patreon if you guys can. And, and again, thank you for sitting through those crimes. Again, I didn't want to, I didn't want to demean the later crimes by not covering this closely, but I just had to find some way to do it in a way where we weren't here for two hours listening to the details of every single crime, especially when so many of the details are the same. But at the same time, I didn't. I also didn't want to say, and then he committed 23 more crimes. I wanted to get, at least for the victim's sakes, I wanted to get the attack recognized in the podcast, or, or I should say mentioned in the podcast. And, you know, the, these next few cases, as he graduates on to murder, they're going to be a little more uh, complicated and a little, there's going to be a little bit more to talk about. Uh, on these cases and the investigations, that kind of stuff. So part three, we'll cover the original Night Stalker and uh, said, I'm excited for it. Hope you guys are too. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you later. Bye.